Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening, and welcome to The Interpreter Radio Show. We have here tonight Martin Tanner, Chris Fredrickson. I'm Bruce Webster, trying not to mess things up on the board. Uh, I've been at this for a couple of years, and it's still a struggle. Anyway, glad to have you with us tonight. The Interpreter Radio Show is sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation at interpreterfoundation.org, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the scriptures, doctrine, and history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, again, you can find that at interpreterfoundation.org. Tonight, we are going to talk first about the Come, Follow Me lesson in March. I forget which dates it is exactly. <laughs> Martin may chime in. Covering Matthew 11 and 12 and Luke 11. Uh, we're going to talk about some topics in church history, particularly in, in 19th century church history. Uh, and, uh, and then we'll talk about some other things. <laughs> As, as always, we, we are on top of things, and this should be a lively and entertaining discussion. <clears throat> Let's start with Come, Follow Me. Uh, Martin, are you looking up the lesson there? Sure. We, we have as our lesson um, for March 13th through the 19th, Matthew 11 and 12, and Luke 11, the title of which is, I Will Give You Rest. And it's a, it's a great series of... Statements about Jesus in here, and so. Be- before we dive into it, I'd actually like to use my prerogative as running the board and and jump in with something that struck me today as I was listening to these chapters. And I listened to them a couple times. Uh, <clears throat> and and Martin and Van in the previous hour in Mormon Miscellanea sort of closed with a comment about likening the scriptures unto ourselves. I was struck listening to the events and the interactions of the crowds and individuals with Jesus in these chapters that there are parallels to today, uh, to those who do not like how the church leaders do certain things, uh, those who wish that church doctrine was something different, uh, those who feel they know better than the Savior. <laughs> Uh, and it's <clears throat> and those who do not realize what they have. Uh, I think I may have mentioned this a few months ago, but uh, I was on an area training uh, session uh, for stake presidencies, high councilmen, bishoprics, and so on. And the area president for our area expressed concern over the number of members he's getting reports on. These are usually returned missionaries and or people who have been through the temple who are beginning to see their temple covenants as, uh, what do I want to say? Superfluous. Yeah, if not superfluous, sort of, well, you know, we really don't need to wear garments all the time. No, we don't care about these temple covenants. We, we don't do this. And uh, I think it's worth, as, as we go through these chapters and read some of the things that the Savior has to say to the people of his time, 
uh, it's worth taking you know a moment to mentally apply these to some of the challenges both within the church, those on the fringes on the church, and those outside the church in our own day. So having said that, let's dive into Matthew chapter 11. Chris, I'm going to kick things over to you first. Okay, and just quick background. Uh, Jesus is in Capernaum and surrounding cities during this period of time. It's the second year of his ministry. He's picked his 12 apostles by this period of time. They are with him. This is sort of a missionary training experience for them, if you will. And so what we're going to see here is we're going to see a lot of miracles, and we're going to see a lot of doctrine being taught. Miracles are sometimes used to reiterate the doctrine or to get people's attention so he can share doctrine with them. But there's some very compelling, fabulous doctrine here that is, you know, certainly, you know, and as you mentioned, as I read, it doesn't matter if I read Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter if I teach history. But to me, it's worthless if we don't apply it to ourselves. And everything that we find, you know, in the New Testament, especially those things spoken by Jesus Christ, are in many respects, they're timeless. And they are as applicable to us today as they were then. So here we have Jesus and um where we're going to begin here is when uh, a couple of um, disciples of John the Baptist um, approach John and say, you know, what about uh, this Jesus Christ? John the Baptist here, nothing about what John the Baptist here is meant to indicate that he is rethinking his testimony of the Savior Jesus Christ. That's ludicrous at best because his testimony is so deep and so strong and if we understand who this being is, I mean, this is the individual that was chosen. This is God's messenger on the earth at this period of time who holds the Aaronic priesthood. He has the keys of authority. He's asked to identify the Savior Jesus Christ. He's asked to baptize the Savior Jesus Christ. He's asked to be the forerunner of the Savior Jesus Christ. And he, in all of this, he continually advocates Turn from me and turn towards the Savior, Jesus Christ. I am simply a forerunner. So he's going to send these two disciples off, and he's going to tell them, you know, go check out this Jesus Christ. And the reason he is sending them is because he wants them to gain their own personal testimony of the Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's going to, you know, talk about those kinds of things when they ask if he is the Messiah. And so they do. They go to Jesus Christ, and what does Jesus Christ tell them? He says, look at the miracles that I have performed. And it's a worthy question because who is capable of performing these miracles and to do it under the direction of God the Father? It's only the Messiah that could perform these extraordinary miracles. And actually, if you think about it, the miracles that he performs among mankind pale in comparison to his creation of the earth and everything that is in it, to his divine birth, to his resurrection. This certainly is going to be part of his ministry. Nevertheless, he is going to testify to them that indeed he is, and then I think one of the sweetest you know, chapters is this chapter because we ha- then we have Jesus Christ articulating his devotion and his love for John the Baptist and all that John the Baptist has done and who he is and the kind of sacrifices that not only he will read later on, but his father Zacharias, obviously his mother Elizabeth, have made in Jesus Christ's cause. So it really is sweet and touching. You know, as we read these things, that's just the beginning of the chapter. I'll, I'll stop there and turn it on to whom, turn it over to whomever. Martin. Well, the, the, the gist of, of these chapters is um, Jesus giving authority to John the Baptist and vice versa. They complement each other. And each is 
well accepted and and well um, believed and understood and revered by the people. And so when they each say things like this about the other, it helps reinforce the gospel message and its and its importance and its credibility to those that are listening. And from here, we, we have this transition where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, and no one has ever been born who's greater among women. And and th- then you have uh, a, a couple of other quotes. And then we get into the crux of things, where he begins to talk to, to the people. And, and that starts to happen um, about in verse 20. It says, Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his deeds of power had been done, because they did not repent. And he says in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have have repented long ago. But... I tell you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for those two cities, Tyre and Sidon, than for you, Capernaum. And this is a pretty dramatic rebuke. Stinging indictment. He's talking to the Jews who see themselves as the chosen people of God. Yes, yes. And and it's it's, – I've thought a lot about this and – what does it mean to be chosen? Because the Jews' point of this was that <clears throat> um, it was lineage. It was kind of DNA, except they didn't have a DNA yeah. idea back then. But the gist of it was if you were Abraham's, if you could trace your lineage back, that was it. You were chosen. And Jesus is saying, no, I, I can raise up Abraham's children out of stones. You know, that's your your lineage has nothing to do with it. It's if you follow Abraham and what Abraham is teaching, that's what makes you a child of Abraham and accepted of, of God. And so Jesus is he is literally fulfilling here the idea that early Christians recognized in him from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, where Jeremiah, at the time of, of the great fall when, when Jerusalem is, is sacked, he, he says, lamenting the, t- the time will come in the future when God will again uh, be, be the God of the, of the Jews. And okay, you Jews, now you've broken your covenants. You have not done what God asked you to do. But a time will come in the future when there will be a new covenant. And how will you recognize it? It's not going to be the old one. It's going to be a new one where God will write his message in your hearts. And you will be his people, and he will be your God and people who read and knew Jeremiah, and of course the scriptures during this time were not the New Testament. It was the Old Testament. And so when the people read Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34, they saw Jesus and his message because it was one of love and not of the letter of the law. And Jesus is sort of 
this this is one of the things that that I think was being recognized by the early Christians when when they saw Jesus as being representative of that. He's telling people to repent and to do good things and to accept Jesus. And, and then he turns in verse 25, and you have this wonderful statement where very differently than you would have ever seen from the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he... He prays to God, who is a close, personal, loving father, and he he expresses he expresses gratitude. This is really, really wonderful d- discussion. So, I, I, sure, a little background there. Uh, I'll back up a little because this is this is one of the first passages that made me think of uh, some relevance to today, uh, where starting in verse sixteen. The Savior says, and to what shall I compare this generation? It's like little children sitting in a marketplace who call out to friends. They say, we piped to you, and you did not dance. We lamented, and you did not smite your breast. John came to you, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a man, a glutton and wine drinker, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then it says, and then wisdom is justified by her works. Nice, nice call out to wisdom there, which we also see in the Book of Mormon, uh, the uh, female personification of wisdom. But <clears throat> the you had them trying to impose their vision of what the Messiah should be mm-hmm. on the Savior. And uh, they were frustrated. You know, they, they, they didn't accept John. They didn't accept Christ. They're kind of like, no, this isn't what we we're expecting. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys are falling short. You should be doing X. Uh, I, I am fond of saying, and I've said several times on this radio show, that the, uh, <clears throat> the, the similarity between uh, – I'm trying to avoid loaded terms, but uh, – to those who, who might be considered uh, very liberal Mormons and those who might be considered very conservative Mormons is they both do what the prophet would do if he had all the facts. Uh, and in some cases, it's if God had all the facts. Uh, and it's, it's, it is this, they're trying to impose on Jesus. No, this is what you're supposed to be. And a lot of Jesus' ministry, and we'll see this time and again in the passages that we cover today, is Jesus blowing up their expectations and saying, no, no, you don't understand. I am. <laughs> I am here. I'm the called one. This is how things are. And their reaction all too often is not to repent and consider that they might be wrong. It's to find ways to kill them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the hubris here is just, it's just jaw-dropping. They're basically telling God, Jesus, oh, no, you don't get it. This is what your doctrine should be. And, and, and they're complaining. I mean, they're complaining. And, and this is certainly apropos to our day because we see a lot of this among individuals in the church today. And I, I, I'm perhaps guilty of it, too. You know, I work in the temple 
Women were just told they're supposed to stand at all their posts. I'm like, are you kidding me? And so I was telling my friends that I have, you know, I have perfected the dignified slouch against the wall. Um, but, you know, but he's saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm the one that created this earth. I'm the one that, and you're whining at me and moaning because I haven't given you your way. They're like petulant children. And, and then he follows up here and he says, and you know what? We can't win with you people. Excuse my language. It's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because he says, John comes neither eating than drinking. You say he's possessed of a devil. I come eating and drinking. And you basically say, you know, the same thing, possessed of a devil. And so he says, you people aren't interested in truth. You're not interested in following me. You're not interested in, you know, salvific doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ, eternal doctrines. What you're interested in is you know, meeting your temporal expectations and those things that you want to do. You want me to allow you to do what you want to do. And in this way, you forswear salvation for yourselves. Yeah. Martin. One of the things that we kind of throw rocks at at the Jews here about is trying to superimpose their belief about the Messiah on Jesus. But to be fair towards them... What else could they do? They can't superimpose somebody else's point of view that they don't know. Everybody superimposes their point of view on the world around them and all the events. But the difference is, and I think this is the crux of what Jesus was was trying to say, is there's a difference between trying to push your agenda when the facts start to look bad and just steadfastly clinging to something that is not really supported the more you look into it and letting the truth and the facts lead you where they will. And uh, one of the most fascinating books that I've ever read was by a Jewish guy named Harris Lenowitz, a professor – I don't know if he's still there or not, at the University of Utah. He wrote a book called The Jewish Messiahs, and it's comprehensive. It's all of them. And in there, one of the points that he, that he makes is that the difference with Jesus is that, is that he was a different kind of a messiah. He wasn't a political messiah. People were expecting a political messiah, and that kind of made sense. Because why? Well, they had all kinds of political problems for millennia. They had been defeated in wars, and they had uh, Roman rule superimposed upon them. And so it was natural to want some kind of a political resolution to the problems that they had. But for those who were true by opening up their hearts to to the truth that Jesus was teaching, they would see that there was more to the story than just someone who was going to come and beat up the Romans or punch the Pharisees and Sadducees in the mouth. That there was there was more to what he was doing. He was teaching a new way to look at the gospel. He was really a, a reformer of Judaism in a way that most people in his era uh, did not see or did not see well. And <clears throat> to your point, the difference with Jesus uh, was that he was not just saying you need to accept me as the Son of God. In fact, he tended to downplay that a fair amount. Yeah. It's like, look at the miracles. Uh, it's it's the, the, the comment he makes to John's disciples and then here uh, later on where he says, you know, if, 
if uh, these miracles had been done, if these mighty works had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would still be here today. They would have repented. Uh, it's, a, it's echoed by, I think, Jacob uh, in the Book of Mormon, who, talking about the future rejection of the Savior, says that had, had Christ done this among any other people, they would have repented and accepted him as their God. Uh, and it's their persistence with that. One note before we move on to chapter 12, when a famous passage here where the Savior says, Come unto me, all who are tired and burdened, I will give you rest. Very interesting, the, the Greek word there for rest does not mean vacation. It literally means a break in the work. Uh, and carries the, the meaning and connotation of, you know, I'll give you a break for a time. So when the Savior says, I'll give you rest, he doesn't mean that we won't work in his service. It means I'll give you a chance to catch your breath every now and then. I'll, I'll let you rest, recover, and do that. Uh, and I think the Savior does that a lot with us. He, he you know, demands things of us, sometimes hard things of us, uh, and then gives us rest. Uh, and let's just move on to the next hard thing. Other comments? Uh, I was just going to, and, you know, I think that verse is so important because really he's saying here's the solution to the problem. You people are so hard-hearted. Other people would have repented. And yet you can see the, you know, how deep the wickedness is among certain individuals in this society during this period of time. The New English Bible says, come to me all those who, and so what Jesus Christ is saying here, here's the solution to the problem, you know, that, that you have created for yourself. And he says, it's me. I'm the solution to the problem. Come to me, all whose work is hard, whose load is heavy, and I will give you relief. This is the New English Bible. Bend your necks to my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble-hearted, and your souls will find relief, for my yoke is good to bear, my load is light. So there's the solution is to trust and have faith in the Savior Jesus Christ. Recognize him as the Messiah. Subscribe to his doctrines. Attempt to be like him. won't happen in this life, and it certainly won't happen without him. But if you really want to find the kind of peace and relief and rest, then he is the answer. Martin, any comments before we move on to 12? V- yes, very quickly. <clears throat> one of the most fascinating people that I've ever heard firsthand um, – about a near-death experience was a guy from Heber City area. I'll I'll just leave it at that, Um, and I'll leave out his name because I don't have permission to mention it today. But the gist of what he experienced was really fascinating. He had some quite debilitating uh, diseases that wound up that caused him to be in the hospital several times. And on one of those occasions, his heart stopped, and he was resuscitated and brought back. And he described going to the other side and spending some time with his deceased relatives. And when he described coming back, he he was told that it was not his time. He had to come back. And he said, have you ever had one of these, Martin? I said, no. And he said, well, then I'm going to tell you it's when you come back compared to the other side and and when you first go over there and, and and then you realize the difference i will tell you that every second you are here in earth life it's like 
an enormous weight and burden and trial and difficulty and test. And you are stressed all of the time. But because you're always there, you don't quite realize it. And I said, "Well, I real I realize that quite a bit, quite a bit, you know." Uh, but but the truth is, I'm sure we don't really because if you haven't been over there, you don't see how really nice it is. Uh, but Jesus is telling us right there, as you said, and I wanted to just sort of reemphasize that that. I'm not going to make it all perfect and nice for you. you. You don't get a real rest like you will on the other side. But what you're going to get is, uh, you know, your 120-pound pack is going to maybe go down to 60 for a little while or something. I mean, I that's the kind of an analogy I use. And, and so he's helping us out. He's not eliminating everything. Yeah. Uh, chapter 12 in Matthew. Uh we have a lot of the discussion of the Sabbath day, uh, which, of course, was a big contention. Uh, the Pharisees Pharisees were, were looking for reasons, basically, to condemn Jesus. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> we'll start. Uh, Chris, I'll just toss it to you to start off 12. Well, we're, we're going to see here. Jesus Christ is really interesting. You know, he'll do things that are really quite intentional, and they're in flagrantly in violation of Jewish law, <clears throat> which is going to provoke the Jews, and they're going to attack him, and then he's going to correct, you know, their false doctrines and stuff. But what we see here is <clears throat> he wants to teach us, and he wants the Jews of his day, and he wants us to understand the law of the Sabbath and what the intention is here and, you know, how it is to be used. And it's not going to be, here's a list of things you can do, and here's a list of things you cannot do. I remember once hearing Bob Bennett teach a Sunday school class when I was back visiting my brother in Washington, D.C., and Senator Bennett said, you know, his mother was on the primary general board, and and they were talking about, I think this might have been word of wisdom, not Sabbath, but it, it applies as well. And he said, you know, one of the things we are not going to do today is we're not going to be pharisaical about the law. And so this is what Jesus is basically telling us, you know, it's not about checking boxes. It's again about where our heart is. And so here they are, they're out the gleaning there and they're they're hungry. And <clears throat> they're going to immediately jump on that and tell him that he is breaking the Sabbath law. And that is the case. If you were a Pharisee, they have applied the law in this way. And so they're in violation of what the Pharisees believe the law is. But he's going to remind them that actually, um, and if you look at verses 5 and 6, this is another one of those pretty stinging indictments. He says, um, um, he went into the house of God, ate the sacred. He's talking about David here. David went into the house of God and he ate the sacred bread on the Sabbath. And he says, um, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and it is not held against them? I tell you, there is something greater than the temple here. If you had known what the text means, I require mercy, not sacrifice. That's interesting. It's a little different than we read in other versions of the Bible. You would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is sovereign over the Sabbath. Now, here he is again, testifying, well, actually, I gave the law, and I'm Jesus Christ, and so let me express to you what really the law is. But the first problem here is that you guys don't obey the law of the Sabbath. You're all about the laundry list rather than about, you know, the heart. 
and um, and and how we should use our time on the Sabbath. And it's going to follow up right here with the man that's going to come in with the withered arm. And Jesus is going to be there. And there they are waiting to pounce again. And Jesus Christ knows it very well. So he's going to make a very prominent display. He's going to bring the man up front and center. And he's going to heal him. And in process of this, again, all of the Pharisees and the well, the Pharisees are outraged and the scribes. And he says, well, you know what? Which do you think is better to save, one of your farm animals or a human being? And again, there they are caught in their own trap. And he does this over and over again. And so what he is trying to tell them here, he says, I gave the Sabbath law. I gave it not so you could use it as a cudgel against others, but because my laws are in place to allow people to honor God and to not oppress other fellow human beings. That's what his intention here. So that's where we start off chapter 12. Lots more here, but I'll flip it over to Martin. someone else. Verse 8 has this phrase, the Son of Man, which is a fascinating phrase. It's Jesus favorite way of self-description. And one of the reasons that he uses it is because that phrase, son of man, is something that the Jews, because of Daniel, the book of Daniel, were expecting, um, let me say it a little different way, the Jews read with relish the book of Daniel, and when they got to chapter 7, it describes the Son of Man and how he's going to fix things for the Jews. This is their point of view about who the Messiah is going to be. And so every time you have this self-description of the Son of Man, Jesus is proclaiming himself to be the Messiah to the Jews. And those who understand that accept him because they see what he is doing and that he is fulfilling the things that are expected of the Messiah. And those that don't, the ones that want a political Messiah, the ones that see him as violating law, those those are the ones who who reject him. And that's sort of the flashpoint. This, this exact self-description is one of the things that helps him winnow out those who are followers from those who are critics. The uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite passages in this chapter, of course, is the Savior casting out. There's a blind and deaf individual who has a demon. Savior casts it out, and some of the crowds say, "You know, maybe this is the Son of David. Maybe this is the Messiah." And the Pharisees, desperate to come up with some explanation, say, oh, he's casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub. <laughs> and the Savior just, just takes them to task. <laughs> he says, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> Kingdom divided by, against itself cannot stand. And if I cast them out by Beelzebub, what do your people cast them out by? Uh, <clears throat> the... Uh, there is this this desperate need to find fault with the Savior. Uh, so we have the, you know, they condemn him for conducting a miracle of healing on a Sabbath. Yeah. Uh, they You know, they condemn him. Well, when for, you're dealing with somebody who's perfect, you know, they're kind of doing the best they can. Yeah. <laughs> what can you say? They're, they're uh, con- condemning him for that. And uh, after these passages, we, we launch into... 
the Savior talking about, look, you know, judge a tree by its fruit. If the fruit is good, the tree is good. If the fruit isn't good, the tree is good. Uh, and the reaction of the Pharisees to that is, uh, show us another sign. Uh, and the interesting thing is they're not asking for healing. They're not asking for blessing. They're not asking for that. They say, just show us something fancy that we can, that we can do as a sign. And, of course, he, he has the classic comeback. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> uh, and, and once again, much as he did with Nineveh and Tyre and Sidon and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, says, you know, the uh, people of Nineveh will rise up in condemnation. The queen of the south will rise up in condemnation. Uh, and it's, it's – you sense a certain both forbearance and frustration on the part of the Savior with the hard-heartedness of these Pharisees who could have accepted him, uh, who could have embraced him as Messiah, uh, who could have been healed, basically. And in spite of all the evidence before them, right, right to seeing things such as the miracle of the, the uh, person being healed in the synagogue or the devil being casted out, continued to seek ways not just to discredit him, but to kill him. Kill him. Uh, and that this, is, this is the classic, they'd rather be, rather be right than happy uh, well, entrenchment. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you can see not only his frustration but his sadness because these people are the leaders of the people and they have so warped the law and they have so convinced the people (coughs) that the things that they say are correct and good. And yet (coughs) Jesus here is pointing out, you know, how is it wrong to do something good on the Sabbath? It's that simple. How is it wrong to do something that helps my fellow human being? And their response to that is they immediately go outside and say, Let's, we've got to kill this guy. They're, they're immediately indicating <coughs> or basically they are announcing that we are anything but godly individuals. We're godless individuals. This man is a threat not to truth, but he is a threat to our power. And that's the problem here for them. And so they're going to, I mean, it's just, just it's unbelievable the kind of, you know, histronics um, and the kind of evil practice that they're willing to engage in to silence this individual who challenges their power and their wealth and their authority. So <coughs> they're going to start accusing him of all kinds of things. And this is the problem. So many people by this time have been socialized to believe that anything that they say is, you know, golden. And so they're leading not just themselves, but they're leading the people astray too. And so it has to be heart-wrenching for the Savior. One of my favorite uh, condemnations that the Savior gives to the Pharisees, uh, and he does, I think it's later in Matthew, uh, towards the end of Matthew. He says, For you shut up the way of the kingdom of heaven to others, but won't enter there yourselves. So the issue was not just their own refusal to accept them, but their efforts to basically block others mm-hmm. from hearing and accepting the Savior. 
And, and you, per, I'll just say really quickly too how we, we one of the ways that we can personally apply this is what about this self righteousness that we sometimes see manifest among members of the church? And this is something we need to really carefully check ourselves on time and time again. I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. Everybody's got different ideas and thoughts and ideas. But when you kind of think that you know what's right and what's wrong and that look at those people, they're breaking the Sabbath because they do this, thus and such. You know, we need to be really careful. Martin. Uh, towards, towards the end of this chapter, uh, starting in verse 46, and some people are a little bit uncomfortable with these few verses and, and the uh, parallel ones in, in, in Mark and, um, and Luke. But what's happening here is Jesus is speaking to the crowds. And his mother, Mary, and his brothers and in some of the other uh, accounts, his, his sisters are there to come get him. And, and here it's, it's sort of toned down a bit in Matthew. It just says uh, somebody comes in in verse 47 and tells Jesus, look, your, your mom and your brothers are outside and they want to talk to you. And here it says Jesus responds, well, who are my mother and my brothers? And he points to his disciples and he says, it's all of you. You who follow me, you are as my mother and brothers, because whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. He, he wants to be around those who are willing to obey God. Some of the other parallel uh, verses are, are a little more, shall we say, graphic. They come and they say, we need to get you out of here. He's mad. He's 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 off his kilter. He's let's let's get him back home and see if we can fix him up. I mean, if this was today, it's Jesus. We got to get you home. We've got we've got this. You know this psychologist or psychiatrist. You know few few settings. We'll have you back to normal. And the reason people are so uncomfortable with that is because here you have Mary who had these things happen at the time of his birth, and brothers and sisters who presumably would know him well who aren't instantly believing that he is the Savior and that these teachings are, are correct. And that, that makes some people very uncomfortable. But to me, I, I really like these because you see that at the very latest – uh, at the time of the resurrection, you have this dramatic shift so that James, one of the brothers who must have been here, becomes a leader in the Christian church and writes the book of James. And his other brother, Jude, um, becomes a leader in the early Christian faith and writes the book of Jude. And his mother and brothers and sisters all become real, genuine believers in his message. And so somewhere between here towards the uh, beginning or middle of his ministry, there's this dramatic shift that in many ways is much like Paul's, where he's kind of a critic or, or a, the, I mean, he's worse than a critic, yeah. but they're antagonistic. His, his family's antagonistic, and it completely shifts. And to me, that signals 
the truth of the gospel, because if this were not a great, amazing message from God, this wouldn't have happened. The change wouldn't have happened. In their, in their hearts. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to Luke 11, and we can probably get through it before we hit the top of the hour here. There's always a chance. Yes. <laughs> uh, and the Savior uh, talks about, they say, Lord, teach us how to pray, and we get a, a short version of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but then he, he teaches an interesting lesson about the need for persistence. Uh, and uh, I love the parable here. He tells this parable a couple different ways. He's got one with a widow and a judge. Here he has the, uh, the neighbor who, who comes and says, hey, I've got some visitors. I need some food. And it's like, go away. We're in bed. <laughs> My kids are asleep. <laughs> Why are you here? Uh, and says, yet because, and this is uh, verse 8, yet because of his insistence, he will arise and give him what, you need, what he needs. And says, this is what you guys do. God is your heavenly father. You are his children. You know, which of you gives your children, you know, if he asks for an egg, gives them a stone. If he asks for a fish, gives them a serpent. If he asks for a loaf of bread, gives them a scorpion, which I always found interesting. I think that was the substitution there. Uh, oh, egg, it's scorpion. Anyway, he says, if you being evil know to give good gifts to your own children, what do you think your heavenly father is going to do? And and this is, there is an important deeper lesson here because we sometimes have a propensity to see God as being punitive uh, or withholding. And part of it because, is because God doesn't always give us what we want, and this is why we have the parable about, you know, persevering there. You know, the, uh, there, there is great power and importance in a persistent prayer. Uh, because that has that has an effect on us and on our hearts and our uh, willingness to, uh, you know, sometimes we bargain, but after a point, it's just we're back to the uh, the one of my favorite parables, parable of the the sinner in the temple in Luke eighteen, where you know the Pharisee talks, you know, boasts about how much he gives and so on and. The publican standing afar off would not so much as lift up his head and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's, that's what the power of importunate prayer comes, the fact that sometimes the Lord makes us persistently ask to get our hearts in the right place. I, Chris. Yeah, I— want to share something it's a little it's just a personal experience with my son but i want to preface it with you know i've got in my notes here uh in prayer it takes intense concentration takes persistence it takes faith faith and god will answer on his timetable with what is best and right and i think sometimes we have a sense that gosh we've got to be doing things all right for god to answer our prayers but here's what his promise is ask and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. I have a son who is not a member, an active member of the church right now. He's very involved in Christian ministry, and I edited um, his book, so his book is going to be out, published soon. And then it's his um, journey from um, through um, into drugs and alcohol and pornography, and then out of it. And 
he writes periodically in this book of instances where he turns to God in prayer and pleads for help so that he can extricate himself from all of these problems that he is dealing with at this period of time. And he says there, I wasn't free from some of these problems by any stretch of the imagination, and yet God was right there helping me and answering my prayers and you know, opening doors and making it possible for me to make this transition. And I think that, you know, we sometimes forget that. God loves every one of his children. He has said over and over again he's willing to condescend. I mean, to come down to talk to us in our language, on our level. And he wants us to reform, and he wants us to come unto him. And so he's going to do everything in his power, and we need to ask. I think there certainly does need to be some humility there, some recognition, you know, some belief in God. I think that certainly is essential you know, at the very, very basis. But, you know, he's not asking, saying, you know, you've got to be perfect to ask, and then I'm going to start giving you answers. I'm going to be there for you with your needs. He certainly does know our hearts, and I think that's where he makes a determination how he responds when we pray. And, you know, as um, I think it was Elder Scott gave a beautiful talk on prayer as well, and he said sometimes he doesn't answer. And he doesn't answer intentionally because he wants us to persist in praying and develop a relationship with him. Sometimes he doesn't answer because it's not right. Um, so there are reasons for not answering. Mark, uh, Martin. <laughs> One of the most astute talks that I ever heard about prayer was a long time ago, you know, and far, far away in another guy. I'm sorry. I, but this, this, this was quite some years ago, but it's really stuck with me because the, the speaker said, you know, if your prayers aren't quite getting there, why don't you think about changing them a little bit so they might be a little bit more acceptable to God? And one of the examples that he gave was he said, a huge percentage of prayers are in essence – Dear Lord, please take away somebody else's free agency and make them do this thing that I'm asking you to get them to do. <laughs> and 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 the point was that, of course, God's not going to do that. You know, please stop somebody from doing something bad. Well, God's not going to just stop them. But if you think about it, and approach God in a little bit different way, then he's more able to help you because you're not just expecting God to fix it. But maybe if you prayed and said, Dear Heavenly Father, please inspire me to influence this other people to help he or she understand why what they're about to do or what they're doing now is really, really a bad idea, then you're not just praying to take away somebody's free agency or trying to find a way to help them understand a better path. And so carefully considering prayers is uh, very, very valuable. And then we also have to realize that we're, if we look at the Doctrine and Covenants, it's not me that you be commanded in all things, because the person that's commanded in all things is a wicked and slothful servant, and you're supposed to do many things of your own free will. And I mean, those are kind of applicable here. So do the best you can, and when you need a stretch and help from our Father in Heaven, then, then you pray and, and ask for that additional um, help. But much of this life is meant to be difficult and something that you're supposed to work out on your own. 
to a large extent. um, Jesus and Heavenly Father appeared to Joseph Smith after he did everything he could to figure out which church was true. It wasn't just one little episode, and he asked. He could not figure it out on his own. He specifically says it was beyond his ability to decide or to figure this out, and it was then that he prayed. You know what? That reminds me, too, because in that experience with Joseph Smith, uh, Richard Bushman uh, suggests that Joseph Smith thought perhaps he had had that typical conversion experience. This is another interesting point about prayer is that sometimes we are going to go to our Father seeking an answer, and we seek a certain kind of outcome when we pray, and yet oftentimes Jesus Christ is going to give us something and we don't recognize it as the answer to our prayer because it wasn't what we wanted or what we anticipated. And so if Joseph Smith did see it as a conversion experience, he, he, he in a fairly rapid period of time, realized that was not what this was, was, was at all, um, particularly the response he got from all the ministers when he told them about this, but that something, God had something much better for him. It's like me, you know, I always pray I'll win the lottery. God seems to recognize that this is not something good for me. And the other problem, of course, is that means I would have to buy a ticket, <coughs> which I can't do that. But, um, but you know, it's Dear Lord, help me get, win the lottery <laughs> without a ticket. Yeah. And then I'll really yeah, be a real miracle. Be best, and I'll pay double tithing and, you know. Um, but, you know, I mean, he knows what's best for us. He's going to give us. It says here in the, the you know, the English version, the or one I use here, he says he's going to open the door. And the door will be opened. Uh, but we don't know what he's going to open it to necessarily. And so we just have to continue that relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ. I remember receiving a very specific answer to a prayer. I was getting ready to go back to graduate school, and I couldn't decide whether to apply in English literature or whether to apply in history. And I was inclined to history, but I opened up to where, um, who was the first historian of the church, where he was basically told, you know, that you're to do a history of the church. It's, that was a pretty indicative to me. Okay, I'm going to do history. And the, it read there about history of the church. Well, I went into history. Yeah, that was my, you know, my PhDs in modern European. But really, I ended up teaching and studying and becoming totally enamored with church history and ended up teaching in the religion department. You know, these were all part-time appointments um, uh, in my career. And so, again, I didn't see that that's where God was actually taking me initially, but it was. I'd like to jump ahead to verse 34. There's a passage here. Uh, I'm reading from Thomas Wayman's translation. Your Your eye is the light of the body. When your eye is healthy, your entire body is full of light. But when it is wicked, your entire body is full of darkness. Contemplate whether the light in you is darkness. If your entire body is full of light without any portion of darkness, it will be full of light like when a lamp gives you light with its rays. Hugh Nibley once made the observation that there is nothing inherent in reality, that says we can only think of one thing at a time, but that's true. Humans can really only think of one thing at a time. And it's quite clear that God can think of basically an infinite number of things at a time. He has relationships with his children all through the universe uh, in numbers that, you know, beyond our comprehension. Uh, But Nibley's point was part of this, and he says, I think this is a limitation of mortality. And he said, I think the reason is because it means quite literally moment by moment we make decisions as to what we are going to think about. Uh, and that's part of our choices. And the, uh, as, as 
just about everyone knows now, the, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which is to change the way you think. Uh, filling ourselves with light is coming to think like Christ. And that's, that's how we have this, this. The point here is the eye is single. You know, the light there is single. But it's what we are focused on moment by moment. And the challenge of mortality, quite literally, is to remain focused on Christ because there are so many things. Uh, to distract us here. Uh, like so wanting to win the lottery. Yeah, <laughs> do I win the lottery? Uh, I gave a talk today, a high council talk, and I quoted from President Nelson. I was talking about things he's taught. and On, on a couple of different occasions, he's talked very specifically about the distraction of social media uh, and that you know most social media does not lead us to Christ. Yeah, he's not saying it's bad or evil, he says, but you know, there are literally billions of lines of text online and the question is where are we spending our time, to whom are we listening to, where are we focused, what path are we following? Yeah. Yeah. Time is a finite commodity. And there's only so much of it and once it's gone we don't get it back and you know, how are we spending it? One little thing I want to that I really love is I love this where he talks about and it's a little oblique here, but where he talks about the individual who um um he basically says here, and this is in verses 43 through about 45, where he says, you know, the scribes came unto him, Master, uh, it's written, every sin shall be forgiven. You say whatsoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven. And they ask him, how can these things be? And he said, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. But when a man speaketh against the Holy Ghost... And then he goes on and he, is, he describes here the fact that the problem is, is that what happens is that individuals will try to turn away from the evil influences in their lives. But then what happens is if they don't replace the spirit of Satan that is in them with the spirit and the light of Jesus Christ, then very quickly that void's going to be filled again by not only that one spirit of that one wicked spirit but he says here seven additional spirits will inhabit and then it makes it even more difficult for that individual and and i think that's that's critical mass here is we have to it's not enough just to sometimes well maybe this social media thing is a good example of that you know social media it's we, we might not see it as any big deal and yet i think we're much better off i'm making a really concentrated effort these days to make sure that, you know, the media and the kinds of things that I watch, that they're filled with some light and truth. And it has an enormous effect on the spirit that I have, particularly my level of happiness and joy. And so we need to be really careful. It's not enough just to forswear bad things, but what's essential is that we replace them with the light of Jesus Christ in our lives. Martin, last comments before we hit the break. Sure. Um, going back to verse 10, <clears throat> it's been fascinating to me that it says not just that some people or a few people, it says everybody's going to get their prayers answered. Everybody who knocks will find everybody. And, and that must mean that many of these happen in ways that we don't um, expect or understand. But I believe in that verse that God tries to answer every prayer of ours in the best way possible. And that's a great note to end up. Uh, we'll see you after the break. This is the Interpreter Radio You're Show. 